How are we doing, church? Good to see you today. If you would, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, don't you love when we do child and family dedication? I do. Uh, I had a, a guy ask me one time, uh, do you think we're getting too big to do child dedication? And I said, only if you think you're too big to follow after Jesus. Because Jesus said, unless you change and become like these little children of mine, you have no part in the kingdom of heaven. So let it just be a reminder to us that we are not supposed to have childish faith but childlike faith. And I, I just think it's the, one of the greatest things in the world that our church partners with families to raise children in the gospel of Jesus Christ because it takes more than a village. And in fact, you don't want the village raising your kid these days. You'll get the village idiot, okay? You need the church to help raise up our children. So give it up one more time for all of our families. Amen, amen, amen. <clears throat> So if you're new here, if this is your first time, uh, we are in week four of a series. And so uh, what we do, it, it, you know, we've been studying the same passage now for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so it's kind of like coming in on the middle of a movie, all right? And so there's a lot of catch up that you would, you would have to do. It's rooted in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 and 14 that says this, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And so the premise here is that the Bible commands and calls us to act like men. Act like men. Maybe that phrase is like the hub and the center of the will. And then the imperatives all around it is the biblical definition of what it means to act like a man. And so week one, we just, we just asked the question, what went wrong? I mean, what went wrong? Where are all of the good men? And so when it's as jacked up as it is now, I think you've got to go all the way back to the beginning to see what God created for us to be as men. And we see Adam, our, our great, great granddad in the garden, was given by God three things. He was given a will to obey, work to enjoy, and a woman to love. And then the enemy comes in and twists all of those things. And then Jesus, the second Adam, comes to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and restore us as men. And we believe this, that when men lead and love well, everyone flourishes, everyone flourishes. And a part of what it means to act like a man is to be watchful or to stand on watch or to stand on guard, that every single man, whether you're 18 or 88, married, single, whatever, that all of us have called to all of us have been called to be prophet, priest, king, provider, protector, and defender. That God has put us on that wall to defend. And this world needs us and wants us on that wall. And the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion trying to take us off of our, of our watchful position. Because if he can take us out, then by very definition, there are some defenseless people left behind. And then last week we said, okay, so if we are going to fight against the enemy, what does it look like to stand firm in the faith? And in Ephesians chapter six shows us how to put on the full armor of God or the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the attacks of the evil one because they are coming. And if you're going to be in a fight, you better be strong. That's why the next thing we are commanded to do is to be strong. Now, I think when we think about strength, we think about physical strength, we think about those kind of things. The, the, uh, the dictionary just says strength is having the power to perform physically demanding tasks, able to withstand great force or pressure. If you are a man, and if you're a godly man, there will be, there will be an incredible amount of power and pressure against you. It is your spiritual enemy, the devil, who wants to kill, steal, and destroy you so that he can have his way with everything that you have been called to stand in the gap for, to protect. 
Jesus says this in Luke eleven twenty: when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. So what does it mean to be strong? Now, thank goodness, Jesus is gonna come along and redefine strength. He's not just talking about physical strength. I think when our world thinks about being strong, we think about positional strength. Like, you will do what I say. You see that name badge right there? It says assistant manager, and you will listen to what I say. All right, we think about that kind of strength. We think about possessions. You know, somebody that has won at this world is the, is the person that has all of the stuff. Or we think about power, whether it's physical or political or whatever. And then Jesus is going to come and take that paradigm and turn it on its head. If you go to, to Matthew chapter 20, we're going to pick it up in verse 17. I think it's interesting before Jesus is going to lay out what power and what strength actually is, he starts with these words. It says, and Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before Jesus is going to redefine what it means to be great, what it means to be powerful, what it means to have strength, he's going to start it out with the gospel. In other words, um, what looked like the greatest moment of weakness in the world, that the God-man is crucified, turns out to be the, the, the demonstration of ultimate power and strength, not just in his day and not just in our day, but actually throughout all eternity. You see, Jesus wants them to know that he did not show up to flex. He showed up to demonstrate faith. You see, and here's what's crazy. The Pharisees. The Pharisees all throughout the Bible, they were the religious leaders and they turn out to be like the bad guys of the New Testament. They turn out to be like the Klingons of the Bible, okay? They're always bad, they're always up to no good. Here's the crazy thing about, about the Pharisees. They knew the Bible better than everybody else in town. In fact, the name Pharisee in Hebrew simply means separated ones. And so their job was to memorize the Old Testament and keep all of the rules. And they had laws about the laws about the laws so that they would always be ceremonially clean. And here's why. They wanted to be clean or set apart or holy so that when the Messiah showed up, they would be the first to recognize him. That they would be the first to recognize him. That was their job. But here's the thing. They thought that the Messiah was going to show up in power not as a servant, not as a carpenter, definitely not somebody that was beaten and battered and bruised and hanging on a cross. And so, I mean, this is crazy. They were supposed to be the ones to recognize God, the Messiah, the Christ, when he showed up. And they were two feet away from him. They could smell the breath of God and they did not know that the Almighty was in their presence. They totally missed it. And a part of the reason I think they totally missed it is because they thought that God would demonstrate himself in power, that they would kick out the Romans and that they would take over and they would be the mighty nation of Israel again. And instead of flexing, Jesus humbled himself and he went to a cross and they totally missed it. They totally missed that, that he would show his true strength through obedience to death on a cross. And so he says, he lays out for everybody. They're on their way up to Jerusalem. When you go with me to Israel, you walk uphill the whole week. It's the craziest thing you've ever done in your life. Okay, it's only uphill. And so you go up to Jerusalem, 
And he says, listen, I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna die, but I'm gonna be resurrected. That's called the gospel. Verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Zebedee came up to her, came up with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. She's like, okay, enough about you. I have a prayer request. I mean, think about this. By the way, this is kind of how we come to church all the time, right? We show up to church thinking, I have a great need. Jesus lays out the gospel. I went to the cross to die for your sins. Okay, okay, enough about you. Here's what I got going on. All right, my pet cat has Achilles surgery right now, okay, and I need, need your help, right? Now, if that's important to you, it's important to him because you're important to him, but cats aren't important. That's just true. Okay, so <laughs> here's what she does. <clears throat> she comes up. She's like, oh, okay, you and your death and resurrection, I got some important stuff. Verse 21, and he said to her, what do you want? I think that's how he said it, okay? What do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, I think what Jesus is gonna do here in the next set of verses is he is gonna redefine what it means to be strong. Because what these men want is they want power, they want position, they want strength. And what we're gonna find here is that Jesus is gonna reorient us in God's economy, what does it look like to be strong? Now, the first thing is this, is that a strong man is a Sabbath man. Now, I made that word up, but let me just tell you what it means. Now, if you've been doing Bible study for a long time, which I have, I've been doing Bible study professionally for 20 plus years. Here's the problem with becoming really, really familiar with the text. When I read the first verse, I already know Jesus's response and I know where it's going. But this, this time, as I was studying this text, I was sitting in a tree stand in Missouri, okay? And God lives in Missouri too, because he spoke to me. So this is where this, this is a Missouri message, all right? It did get warm, I didn't get to shoot a deer, but I'll go back, all right? And so, um, he, here's the thing, I already know that Jesus is gonna rebuke him, but this is what's just true. Even though these guys' perspective was wrong and their motive was right, their, their, I mean, their motive was wrong and their perspective was wrong, um, their understanding of position was absolutely right. You see, here's what these men knew. Now, they got their mom to do this, so they're kind of wimpy. They probably needed to listen to the sermon series. But, but they knew that it was their proximity to Jesus, not what they produced that, produ that, that determined their success. They knew this. It's not what they could do out there on their own, but they knew if they could just sit at the right hand and left hand of Jesus, then that would determine their success. Not the things that they could produce apart from him, but their proximity to him, that that's what mattered the most. That's why I say this, a strong man is a Sabbath man. Sabbath, I mean, honestly, who even does that these days, right? I mean, most of us don't Sabbath. It is a commandment, but most of, most of us don't Sabbath. And here's, here's what the Sabbath is. Sabbath is not just a day off. I mean, the only... People I know that Sabbath is, is Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A. We talk about this. And we thank God for Hobby Lobby's honoring of the Lord on the Sabbath so we could have parking for our San Pablo campus. Thank you, Jesus. We get very frustrated with Chick-fil-A when I want a chicken sandwich and they're closed, all right? So, but here's what the Sabbath is, okay? The Sabbath was a gift from God. In the beginning, before there was ever sin, there was a Sabbath. That God creates the man, he creates everything in six days. And on the sixth day, he creates the, the crown jewel of all of his creation. 
And he creates man and woman in his image and likeness. He forms together the form of a man. He breathes the ruah of life into the man. He opens his eyes and the man is face to face with his almighty father. And then God says, it's not good for a man to be alone because everybody knows he'd burn the whole place down. So he gives him a wife to keep him in order. And then the two together are co-creators with God. Now, that happens on the sixth day. And then the next day, what happens? The next day is the Sabbath, which means the first full day of humankind, they experienced Sabbath. Why? To rest? No, 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 no. No, because they weren't tired. You don't get real tired being created. Right, they didn't do anything, they just, ah, here we are, we are created. And then they rested on the very first day, which means that, that, that the Sabbath is not for us to rest from work, it's for us to rest for the work that God has established for us to do for the next six days. You see, it's the first day of the week where we give God our first and our best because he has called us to accomplish things. And it's not just about like chilling out and watching football, which you should. And I'm praying that the Jags win today too, no problem. A raider is somebody that comes and takes something that is not theirs. That is not a biblical value. <laughs> I pray that, that we, we welcome JDR back with another loss. He should be really used to that, okay? So here in Jacksonville. now. So, yeah, watch football and all that stuff. But what it really means is that, that we reorient ourselves to God. That's what worship and Bible study is together when we gather together as a family. It is about rest that we get, we get poured into, we don't pour out. And it's about reorienting ourselves with Jesus. It's about rooting our relationship with him. That's what it is. You see, Sabbath is a gift from God. Sabbath is also a reminder that you need him. Every single time you get tired and you need to rest, it is a reminder that you cannot do this on your own. And in, the, in, the, in not only the first century, but all throughout the Old Testament, for an agricultural society to take a full day off was, was a demonstration of faith. When you cut your labor force by one-seventh, what you're saying is this, God, we can do more with you in six days than we can do our, on our own in seven days. It is, a, it is a declaration that God still got the world in his hands. Now listen, my favorite seminary professor on the day I graduated, I only had one professor I liked, and uh, so he's my favorite one. He said this, I've told you this a million times. He said, Joby, bless your ministry. And if, the, if God can't make you, if he can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. If God can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. So let me just ask you, are you busy? Are you busy? In fact, Busy is a high value where we're from, is it not? It's a, it's a greeting. People will say, are you staying busy? And what do you answer? You better answer, uh-huh, up to my eyelids. Woo, don't know how I'm gonna make it, right? Can you imagine if somebody answered you like, no, actually I live in rhythm and I, I, I'm living in Sabbath rest. You'd be like, what is wrong? Are you in a cult? Get away from me. <laughs> if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And so my question is this, are you spending your most precious commodity, your time, on the most important things? Or are you spending all of your time, your most precious commodity, on the things that don't really matter because you're trying to prove who you are through your activity instead of trusting your identity is in Christ? That you are a son of God. You need to rest 
You need to be refueled. You need to be rooted in your relationship with God. If you'll remember the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, it's one of my favorite. Uh, the master comes and he gives out five, I mean, three sums of money, five talents, two talents, and one talent to these three guys. To the, to the guy with the five and the, three, the two talents, they go out and they trust God with the money. And the guy with the one talent, he gets to work. He gets to work. The problem is he's really busy about all the wrong things. He goes and in fear, he digs a hole and he hides the money. And I don't know how many wheelbarrows it takes to get a million dollars worth of shekels. They didn't have like a debit card. This was like physical coins and things. And so this guy goes and he builds a huge, digs a huge hole, puts all the money in it. Then he's got to cover it up because the raiders are coming to town and he doesn't want them to see it. And then he hears that the master is on his way. So he's got to go back, dig it all back up, get a bunch of wheelbarrows, take it all to the master. And when the master comes, he says, you wicked and slothful servant. And you're like, whoa, he wasn't slothful. Yeah, he was super busy about all the wrong things instead of trusting God with, who, with, with what he had given him. You see the difference? So my question is this, are you busy? Are you busy? If so, if so, you don't need to slow down. You don't need to slow down. People tell me this all the time, okay? Good meaning Christian people. They say, Pastor Joby, I think you're too busy. I think you need to slow down. And I say, well, I appreciate it, but I think you need to read your Bible. Here's what you do. You don't slow down. I don't like the word pace. Are you running at a comfortable pace? No, I don't want to lead at mediocrity for the rest of my days. That sounds terrible. I want to do what the Bible says is you work and you sweat and you bleed for six days and then you stop. You don't slow down. You stop and you rest, and you recuperate, and you rejuvenate, and you stay rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you can get after it again. Do not leave a balanced life. Balance is a myth. No one can serve two masters. That's balanced. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then you stop, and you Sabbath rest in him. That's what you do. You see, um, Sabbath is the fourth commandment. It's really, really important. Sabbath is the fourth commandment. The first three commandments are about our vertical relationship with the Lord. Commandments five through 10 are about our horizontal relationships with one another. Theologians tells us that fourth, that fourth commandment is the hinge commandment. Because if you don't reorient yourself to the Lord every seven days, then you will not be able to love people. In other words, like Jesus said, you gotta love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So are you busy? Do you need to stop and rest is your, is your activity actually just fueled by your fear that you're gonna let somebody down, understanding that it's not you that's holding them up to begin with? You see, I've got a theory, and, it, and, it, and you can't prove it, which are the best kind of theories, all right? My theory is this. All of these uh, pastors that are falling right now, which seems like there's one a week. Some of them are my friends. You see pastors all the time that, that, that make... Um, they fail morally, and then they're disqualified from the ministry. I really believe that the majority of these guys that, that fall because of moral failure, I think it has more to do with exhaustion than morality. I just think they're spent. And instead of reorienting themselves um, on a weekly basis with God and who he is, and orienting themselves as a son, they're really acting like servants, trying to prove themselves to the Lord. And you get exhausted, and then just, men, is this not true? Don't you make some of the worst decisions in your world when you're exhausted? I mean, it is in, it's when you're just worn out that you snap and react instead of respond in love. 
a strong man is a Sabbath man. A strong man is a Sabbath man. Stop. Kneel before the Lord. Rest. Reorient yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not to be lazy, but so for the next six days you can do everything God has called and commanded you to do. So a strong man is a Sabbath man. Secondly, a strong man is a persevering man. Jesus answered him, verse 22, says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. Now the cup that he's talking about here, according to Isaiah and Jeremiah, these are both Old Testament prophets in the, in the, in the Bible, that, that God would use this phrase, the cup, to talk about his wrath being poured out on sin. That's what the cup is. It's a cup of wrath being poured out on sin. It's the same thing that Jesus was talking about when he's in the garden of Gethsemane. And he says, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, Jesus was hoping or asking for what a lot of people ask for these days. Why does Jesus have to be the only way to heaven? Can't there be a bunch of ways? That's what Jesus is saying. Hey God, if that's true, if Oprah was right, can we go with her plan so I don't have to die on the cross, but not my will, but your will be done. But there was only one way to give us a right standing with God. That Jesus would go to the cross. The only perfect man who has ever lived would go to the cross and God would pour out the cup of wrath onto Jesus so that Jesus would be the propitiation for our sin. That his payment on the cross would be the payment that satisfies. That's what propitiation means. And that we would be imputed with his righteousness. That his perfect life is credited to our account and all of our sin are counted unto him. And so when they say, hey, can we sit at your right and left? What they are thinking is that those are positions of power. But when Christ is on the cross, there is somebody at his right and left. Two thieves being crucified. And so he's saying, you think you can endure the pain that is before you? You see, there is no glorification without a crucifixion. There's just not. And they don't know where they're talking about. They're like, yeah, we can. And he says, you will drink my cup. In other words, every single one of the disciples were martyred. But to be a strong man is to be a persevering man. If you are gonna stand up and act like a man, you will endure pain. You will endure pain. Now we live in a culture that pursues comfort as the highest priority. And yet we follow a Jesus that says, follow me and we follow him to and through the cross. If you're gonna be a man, you will endure pain. And here's why I say that. Because if you're gonna be a man, you're gonna take responsibility for things that are not your fault. That's a big part of what it means to be a man. It means to bear one another's burdens. It means to take responsibility for things that are not your fault. And you're like, Pastor, what are you talking about? Okay, see Jesus. Ephesians chapter five, Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know what this means, husbands? That everything in your world is your responsibility regardless of whether it's your fault or not. Let me make it really practical. This afternoon when you're fighting with your wife because you're resolving the one that you were having on the way to church because there's no fight like a good old on the way to church fight, is it? Right here, just, I mean, you always, and your mama, you know, you get mad, you get historical, you know what I'm saying? You just, gang, 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 gang. and then you get here and then the ushers are like, how y'all doing? We're just blessed and highly favored, pastor. All right, I know, I know, I know, okay? So when you're fighting with your wife, husbands, you have two options. You can be right or you can be a husband. Those are your options. Those are your options. You're like, what are you talking about? Because we're supposed to love our wives like Christ loved the church. 
Was he right? He could have showed up to be right, but he didn't. He showed up to be the savior. Here's a big difference. How many times did he sin? None. How much responsibility did he take for sin? All of it. He could have shown up and said, look, I'm perfect, you're not. I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell. Peace. Sinner, 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 sinner. See you later. Actually, I won't because I'm not going to hell. You'll be there. I'm going back to heaven. That's what he could have done, but instead he goes to the cross and he endures. He endures that cross for our sake that God made him who was without sin to be sin so that we would be made his righteousness. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He said, it is finished. He paid the price for our sin. You see, the thing that makes you a man is not that you experience pain, but that you can endure and persevere through the pain in accordance to what God has called you to do. Do you see that, man? If you wanna be the man, that doesn't mean you get authority. That means you, you leverage that authority to the endure the pain Endure pain on behalf of others. Proverbs, Proverbs 24, 16 says, the righteous man falls down seven times and rises again. Perseverance is not a value in our current culture. Very few people keep doing the same thing over and over and over in our culture. Like we change our major seven times before the first class is over online. It's just true that, that, that it's almost a measure. How many companies you can work for in a small amount of time seems to be uh, like a good thing and not a bad thing. Perseverance is a biblical value that we would continue to do the right thing over a long period of time. And if you're gonna stand up and act like a man, then you are gonna endure pain because you willfully and willingly choose to endure the pain on behalf of others. This, this 1122 guy sends me a, a, an email. It was, I didn't read the whole, it was a short novel. Bullet points work better in your emails. Thank you very much, okay? But I read through it and during the hurricane, when it was coming through, shortly after that, he went out to the beach to look at the, the, the waves and everything and his family was there. He looks out into the water and there's a couple of guys that aren't making it. And so he goes into the water after him. Very quickly, he begins to realize, uh-oh, now there's three drowning people. But he's helping these two guys make it. Thankfully, a surfer throws them a surfboard. They all come in. Everybody cries. It's, it's this moment, right? He's really appreciative for his people there. As his friends and family find out about this, he says in the email, every one of them said, hey, man, don't be a hero. Don't try to be a hero. We're trying to be a hero. And what he says to me is this. He says, you know, that bothers me a lot because I think in this Act Like a Man series, I think I'm supposed to be the hero or what the Bible just calls be a man. I could not agree more. I could not agree more. If you're gonna be the man, that means you run towards the pain, not away from it, for on the behalf of others. A.W. Tozer says this, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Chuck Swindoll says it this way. He says, when God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and he crushes him. Leave room for the crushing. To be strong is not necessarily to be tough. It's to be tender for and with the people that God has placed in your life. It is to make yourself vulnerable. It is to expose yourself to great pain and great discomfort for the benefit of the ones that God has placed in your life. That's what it means to be a man. And when you get knocked down, and you will, then you get up over and over and over and you never throw in the towel. You never throw in the towel because Christ never threw in the towel for you. 
He endured the pain and the suffering all the way to the cross and the spirit of the son lives in you to persevere. A strong man is a Sabbath man. A strong man is a persevering man. And a strong man is a humble man, a humble man. Jesus says, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Do you see the humility here? And listen, if you're 11, 22, or if you've been around for a little while, verses like this should kind of throw you off a little bit, should shock you a little bit. Here's what I mean. Here at 11, 22, we have a very high Christology. We hold Jesus in very high regard. We all know that Jesus is before all things. Have you ever heard that before? And what this means is that, that he is from the beginning. He created all things by him, through him, for him, and to him, that God was pleased to have the fullness of himself dwell in Jesus, that in other words, cosmically and eternally, and right here, that Jesus is a really, really big deal. That in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is a really, really big deal. All authority in heaven and earth has been placed under Jesus. And then when this mom comes forward and says, hey, can you make my sons like senior VPs of Jesus Incorporated? Jesus says, "Ah, that's a little above my pay grade. What? I thought you were preeminent. He is, but he does not use his position of authority for himself. He lays that down in humble submission to to his father. Let me ask you this question. Do you know how to submit to authority? Do you know how to submit to authority or are you grabbing for power? Can you submit to the authority of our government? Can you submit to the authority at work? Can you submit to the authority of the church or do you think you always have to be the boss? What matters more to you, the title or getting the job done? You see, when Jesus was was on trial for his life and Pontius Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, it is as you say. And then Pilate can't understand why Jesus isn't fighting back. And Jesus says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You see, strength and security are not demonstrated in in our shows of power. Strength and security are best demonstrated in humility. In humility, a brilliant 21st century theologian named Pastor Britt said this one time at a staff meeting. It hurts his feelings that you laugh, though, I think, a little bit. (laughs) Pastor Britt said, no one can keep you from what God has for you, and no one can give you what God has not. That's, That's incredible, isn't it? Let me say it again. No one can keep you from what God has for you, and no one can give you what God has not. Let me tell you this. Do not ever expect for God to trust you with authority until you learn how to live under authority. You want to stand up and be a man? Then you humble yourself to the authority that he has over you. Listen, I learned this firsthand on the slow play. One of God's great gifts to me, great gifts, is that for a decade, I had the opportunity to serve under the authority of Pastor Jerry Sweat at Beach United Methodist Church the most humble man I've ever met, literally the best Christian I've ever met in my whole life. And you see, I came in as a youth pastor. 
That is a sweet gig, man. That is a sweet gig. Most youth, most youth pastors are guys that, uh, that, that, that want all the, kind of all the fun of ministry without all the responsibility of being a lead pastor, okay? And I did it. Here's why I did it. I thought I'm going to be a youth guy forever. You know why I was going to work with students forever? I was like, little kids, they don't know what's going on yet. And old people, they're, they're done, okay? It's right here down the middle. 85% of people surrender to Jesus before, before they turn 18 years old. And I thought, why am I gonna waste my time with everybody else? That's who I'm going for right there. And so we got after it. Now, here's the other thing. I don't know if you know this about me. Um, humility, not one of my greatest attributes, okay? Okay, now you hurt my feelings. I don't know why you laugh at me. I'm trying to be honest with you here. I have an idea about everything. I do. And my ideas are best, and I have a, and I have a Bible verse, all right? And so I would sit in these Methodist committee meetings, which now at 11.22, we don't have committees, right? There were no committees in the Bible. They only voted a couple times. Every time they voted in the Bible, things like Paul got shipwrecked, they crucified Jesus. Those were votes. I don't think I wanna vote for stuff like that, okay? Uh, and by the way, a, a gathering of vultures is called a committee. So there's many reasons I don't, we don't do committees here. But I would be in these committee meetings thinking my ideas were all the best. And I would show up to, to, to weekend services with a critical mind for sure and often a critical heart. And here's what I would think. <laughs> if I was in charge, this is how I would do it. And the Lord went, all right, Scooter, your turn. And now we do this thing. But what I did not realize, I mean, hindsight's always 20-20, right? What I did not realize is that God was placing me, just an arrogant, egomaniac jerk, under the authority of one of the kindest, most humble men I've ever known in my life. To, tra- to smooth off some of the rough edges, to be a safe place for me to learn by example what it looks like to humble yourself, to humble yourself, to not, to not use your position over people, but to be humble. And I tell you who brought it home for me, Pastor Stovall Weems at Celebration Church. You see, some of, some of you people don't realize we're all friends. Some of you think the churches are in competition with each other. That's crazy, okay? That'd be like Puzlesny being in competition with Bortles. They're all the same team. There's only one color around here. It's Team Jesus. And all the churches that love Jesus around here, we are on the same team. We have an enemy, and it is not another church. It is the devil of hell. And so Pastor Stovall, when he heard that 1122 was launching, he took me to lunch at Salt Life. And we're sitting there at Salt Life and we're, and we're chatting about how things are going and all of that. And he's been in ministry a long time and so he knows. And he said, look here, Joby. He points out the window and there's Beach Church right next door. And he says, you honor Pastor Jerry Sweat and you honor Beach United Methodist Church in this season and God will honor you in your season. The way you leave this season of ministry determines how you step into the next season of ministry. And I was like, I felt like I was having lunch with Ezekiel. You know what I mean? Just thus saith the Lord. So I walked out of there, grabbed together the 1122 team and just said, listen, we went through Philippians chapter two, that we should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others in humility better than ourselves, that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, poured himself out in obedience as a servant, even unto the cross. Poured himself out. Some people that think, man, I'm the man, and you are full of yourself. Jesus says, you want to be the man? You pour yourself out in humility. So, fellas, you want to be the man? Then you be humble. Are you constantly self-promoting, or do you actually trust God with your life? A strong man? A strong man is a Sabbath man. A strong man is a persevering man. A strong man is a humble man. And a strong man is a serving man. Verse 24. 
And when the 10 heard it, the 10 other guys, when they heard that these two guys had sent their mom to go talk to Jesus, they were indignant at the brothers. You think? Indignant means, what is wrong with you? You're going to send your mama to go talk to Jesus on your behalf? Man, you need to download the podcast on Act Like a Man. Verse 25, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. See, when he says Gentiles here, he doesn't just mean like those of us that were not born in the Jewish heritage. He means people that don't believe in God. People that don't believe that they're in the place they are in because a higher authority, God Almighty, has placed them there. But people think that they are the God of their own life. You know what they do when they are in charge? They lord it over one another. That's what they do. And then Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. In other words, when we act like that, we are practical atheists. You say you believe in God, you just don't look like it or act like it. And when he says, I, I gotta be honest, when he says, it shall not be so among you, I go, wait, it is so among us. It is so among us. It's so among me. It's so among me. Can I tell you the only reason I'm not a hypocrite? It's because I admit my hypocrisy. And the self-admitted hypocrite is no longer a hypocrite. They're just a sinner. Ding, 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 ding. We have a winner. That's me. Because let me tell you, let me tell you. Well, let me ask you first. What do you do? What do you do when you realize that you are the most influential person at the table? What do you do when you look around, you look around a space and you realize, man, you're like the big dog. You're the head cheese. You are it. If you say something, people have to answer to you. It could be at work. It could be here at church. You're a serve staffer leading the huddle. It could be, and I know some of you push back, you're like, no, 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 I'm never in charge. I'm never the boss. I'm never the most influential. Look, it could be in the swagger wagon driving carpool. You look around and you're like, we will go wherever I want to go. <laughs> or it could be coaching your little league team. Everybody's three feet tall, you're six feet tall. And you're like, <laughs> finally. <laughs> or you might be the shift manager, whatever it is. What do you do when you realize, man, I'm the boss. Now, confession time. By nature and nurture, you know what I do? Flex. That's what I do. You're dang right I'm the boss. That's right. All right? And you will do what I say. Why? Because it's my house, and as long as you live under my rules, anybody else just turning into their dad? Is that happening? And I swore I wouldn't. I promised I wouldn't. Whatever I do, I ain't going to be like that. Now I'm walking around the house turning off lights. Anybody in this room, you know, shutting the door. I guess we're going to air condition all of Jacksonville. All of that dumb stuff. Perry Martin is just coming through me, all right? What do you do when you realize that you are the most influential, powerful person in the room? I'm telling you, by nature, I flex. I'm just confessing it. I, I got to go home and by the power of the Holy Spirit, work on this one. Walk into the house and just have expectations that stuff is going to be done for me. You do that? I do. I want people to know because you flex on me, I will bow up on you and make sure you know your spot with a Bible verse. <laughs> it's worse. And Jesus looks at me and says, it shall not be so among you. And he says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. You see, it's real popular to serve these days. Everybody wants to be a servant until they're treated like one. 
In my world, in preacher world, we use this phrase, and you know, it's in corporate world too, that we want to be a servant leader. Servant should not be a, a, an adjective. You see, what we said is, I want to be a leader, and this is the kind I want to be. Jesus turns that upside down. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, I would ask you the question, do you see yourself as a leader who serves sometimes or, who, uh, or a servant who sometimes gets to lead? See, what do you do when you realize that you are the man? Uh, do you lord it over them? I'm confessing that's what I, I typically do. Jesus says, uh-uh, a strong man is a serving man. And in Christ, our goal is not to rise to the top of the heap. It's to kneel down and to lift others up. Now, listen, I'm not saying that I don't want you to be promoted. Man, I hope and pray that you, you, you are, over time, promoted to be the boss and be the CEO and the CFO and all the O's, okay? I hope you get all the O's. But when you find yourself in that spot, do you think you got you there or do you think God placed you there on purpose? And when we actually trust God and believe that he placed us there on purpose, like a city on a hill, or like a light that shall not be covered up, then what you do is you leverage that for everybody else that God has put under your authority. That's what it means to be a man according to Jesus. In John chapter 13, in John chapter 13, it's a powerful, powerful group of verses. On the night Jesus was gonna be arrested and tried, the next day he would be crucified. He's instituting the Lord's Supper. It's kind of a big deal. And in John 13, the Bible says, Jesus, knowing that all authority, all things had been put under his control, got up from the table and he showed his disciples the full extent of his love. That's what he did. Here's how I'm gonna show them that I love them. He gets up from the table and you know what he does not do? He does not demand that they worship him. All right, everybody stand up, sing me a song. I don't like that one. It's not loud enough. Sing another one. That is not what he did. He doesn't get up and say, all right, here, you wanna love me? Here's what you do. I'm gonna show you the full extent of my love by you better obey me. You'll do what I say as long as you live under my roof and my roof is the canopy of all creation. You know who you're talking to? The son of man. He doesn't do that. He realizes, the Bible wants us to know, he realizes he's the most powerful person in the room and he's always the most powerful person in the room because he created all the rooms. He looks around in that moment and he dresses himself as a servant a servant, a slave, he ties a towel around his waist. And he, the almighty maker of heaven and earth, the one that is preeminent and before all things, he kneels down and the Bible says he washes his disciples' feet. Now listen, that does not hit us with the impact that it hit the people in the first century. Okay, now it's, let's just be honest. Feet are gross, right? Can we just all agree? Now some of you sickos are into feet. That's, you know, we're a movement for all people, but you're weird, all right? You're just weird. In <laughs> 21st century, with your pedicures and all your lotions and stuff, you know, you're doing the best you can. But first century feet are nasty. Or like my people would say, schnasty. If you had a sh on the front of it, it's just like, well, it's worse. And I can't even fully describe it to you. Um, I, if you go to Israel, what's the Jesus movies, all right? Dirt roads everywhere. You know, one of the things you never see in a Jesus movie, you never see a guy walking behind a donkey with like a hefty bag doing the pooper scooper thing, right? That's a, that's a relatively new phenomenon in our neighborhoods. They did not do that in the first century. So where is all that? It's on your feet. Now you're getting the picture. 
There were ceremonial rules about when you come in to, to eat dinner, you would wash your hands, but you did not wash your own feet. Why? Because you don't want your feet to get on your hands because then you're going to make your food nasty. And they would, they would all like share, you know, double dipping was just, ugh, it was terrible. And so Jesus himself gets up to do for them what nobody else wanted to do for them. That's what washing feet is. And then, and then when it's over, here's the other thing too. Usually when a leader gets up and does something like that, there's always some little self-righteous goody two-shoes that's like, no, 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 let me do it. Nobody even takes the towel away from Jesus. And he washes their feet. And it, didn't, it doesn't look like, the Last Supper does not look like what you think it looks like. Okay, Da Vinci was wrong. Jesus didn't say, all right, everybody get over here. I got a selfie stick. This is gonna be awesome. And they all sitting on the same side of the table. That is not how it went. They ate on a table that was about a foot off the ground and they would lounge at the table. They'd put their elbows up by the table and their feet would be way back here. Why? Because you want to keep this part way away from the food. And the servant would go around behind them and he would wash the filth off of their feet. So Jesus leverages his strength, not for himself, but for the benefit of everybody else. And then, he get, and then when he's done, he comes back to the table and he says, no servant is greater than his master. You call me Lord and master, and rightly so, for that is what I am. You see, a lot of you don't realize, especially, man, you just graduated from college. You don't realize you got some people above you. You're like, no, we're all peers. No, you're not. Follow we does not work, okay? God is into point leadership. But what you do when God establishes you as the leader is you dress yourself as a servant so you can do for everybody else what nobody else wants to do. You want to be the man? You want to be the man? Then you do at work, at school, particularly at home with your family. You do for them what nobody else wants to do. Let me try to frame it up this way. Think of the person that you respect the most in the world, whoever that is. The person that you look up to more than anybody else. The person that you would love to meet and just shake their hand and say thank you. For me, it would be like Billy Graham. Okay, for you, I don't know, maybe it's Billy Graham, a preacher. I don't know who it is. It could be an athlete, a star, a politician. Probably not a politician. Okay, bad example, but it's somebody. And imagine when you got home to church tonight, you walk into your house and there is this person that you hold in high esteem and, and you hear something in your bathroom and you go in and they're cleaning your toilet. Wouldn't you think, what are you doing? And they would look at you and be like, who can't aim? And the wife would be like, I know, we've been talking about it for 20 years, all right? And you have that conversation. What would you say? Would you be like, whoa, no, no, don't do that. We can do that, don't do that. This is what it was like for the almighty son of man to get on his hands and knees and wash his disciples' feet. So what is that thing in your house? What is that thing at, at, at your work that nobody else wants to do? Do that thing. Because, because a strong man is a serving man. And remember, the motivation behind Jesus' serving was love. And then he goes on to say, I have set for you an example. You will be blessed if you do likewise. A lot of people serve. Why do you serve? Some people serve out of guilt because you still don't trust the gospel, that you were saved by grace through faith and not by your work, so you're still trying to work your way into heaven, and that's why you serve. Don't do that. You serve from love. Some people serve because they're forced to. Like... <clears throat> Some of you just feel forced to serve. You need to let that go. You need to serve because Christ first served us at the cross. I mean, have you ever called like a, like a helpline? And that guy helps you, right? The guy on the other end. 
But why does he help you? Does he help you out of motivated from love? No, because you pick up the phone and you go, I got a problem and I need you to help. And that poor fella did not do anything, anything to make you so mad. And you were giving it to him. I mean, he didn't pack the box. He didn't leave out the cable. He's not the reason that it doesn't work. And you're just yelling at him, right? You've ruined my child's birthday experience. Now, in his mind, do you think he loves you and wants to serve you? No, his boss's boss's boss said, this is the play we run. This is what we say. Sometimes we serve that way, just out of pure obligation. Jesus says we serve out of love. Sometimes we serve out of manipulation, right? Especially fellas, we're the worst. Because we read five love languages. If you don't know that book, you shouldn't read it, especially men. We need it like crazy. And the premise of the book is you give and receive love like a language. So you need to learn to speak your wife's love language. And the, and the book says that it, it fills your spouse's love tank. And so here's what a lot of us do. We come in to manipulate. Oh, I'm going to fill your tank. And then, baby, I need you to feel my tank. And you misspell it, okay? That's what we do. That is not love. That is not service. Jesus says, to demonstrate the full extent of his love, he dresses himself as a servant and he does for his disciples what nobody else wants to do. Are you a serving man? Because a strong man is a serving man and a strong man is a humble man and a strong man is a Sabbath man and a strong man is a persevering man. That's what it means to be strong. So man, what kind of man are you? All right, do me a favor. I need everybody to look up here. Here, Bay Meadows, everywhere. Look up here. I need you to imagine in your mind, I need you to imagine, men, women, everybody, children, everybody, I need you to imagine, bring to your memory, to the forefront of your mind, the most important man in your life, the most influential man in your life, the most powerful man in your life. And honestly, it could be a really good thing or it could have been a really bad thing. But the person, the man that has impacted you more than any other man in your entire life. I mean, think. You're still not quite there. I mean, I need you to, uh, to bring them to me. They could be alive. They could be gone, whatever. I need you to, to think about them to the point where you can smell them. Now, oh, yeah, there they are, okay? And I want you to close your eyes if you need to, but don't fall asleep. I want to ask you about that man. What if, uh, what if that man was a Sabbath man? What if that man was a Sabbath man? I mean, what if that man that was the most influential man in your life, what if he really was not worn out and instead of snapping at you, he responded in love? And what if instead of worn out and jockeying for worldly position, he was rested and positioned at the feet of Jesus? And what if that man that you're thinking about, what if that man was a persevering man and he got knocked down over and over and over, but, but he got up every single time. And that man stuck, he, he, he stuck to you because he promised and he never, ever, ever gave in the towel, threw in the towel and he never, ever, ever gave up on you and he did not walk away even though it was tough and especially when it was tough, he stood right by you. Till death do you part or when you were a kid, he fought for you, not against you no matter how hard it got, no matter how nasty it got, that he was a persevering man. That was the thing that defined him more than anything else. Was he perfect? No, but he was there and is still there. And what if he was a humble man? What if he was a humble man? And instead of pushing you down, he lifted you up. Instead of words of cursing, it was words of life and blessing. And instead of walking in the room and bringing chaos, he walked in the room and he brought peace. 
What if every time you felt you were low, he just got a little bit lower than you so he could just pick you up and and speak the words and the truth of God into your life? And what if he was a serving man? That whatever the worst job was, he always signed up first to take that one. That he was so patient with you because he was serving you in love. What if the most powerful man in your life was that kind of man? How would your world be different? (laughs) It would completely be different, would it not? It would totally be different. It would completely be different. And not only that, all of our individual lives would be so shaped differently that our entire church would be a different place. The counseling ministry would be completely different. It would be completely different. Our entire city would be completely different because sometime in the past, some group of men decided to be strong, not the way this world defines strength, but the way that God defines strength. It would be different. Now, men, look at me. You could be that man. You could be that man. I mean, imagine, imagine 10 years from now, regardless of how we've been jacking it up, up to today, imagine if 10 years from now, right here at this church, I were to say, hey, imagine the most powerful man in your life. And then somebody 10 years from now, they thought of you. Some coworker, some employee, some college roommate, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your grandchildren. And what if you came to mind? And I said, imagine if that man was a Sabbath man and they thought, you know what he is. And imagine if he was a persevering man and they thought, man, I have been through it. And every time I looked up, that's where he was right there. And I said, imagine if that man was a humble man and they thought, I don't know a more humble man. And imagine if that man was a serving man and they thought, yep, that's him. That is him. Fellas, the measure of a man, the measure of a man is not power and possessions and position but the true measure of a man is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ I implore you to be a strong man to be a strong man not the way this world defines it but by the way the scriptures have defined it for us today because the reality is this there is coming a day when your time on this earth is over they're going to dress you up and and we are going to put you in a box We're going to gather around and we're going to talk about you. And I doubt very many people are going to talk about your power or your possessions or your position. They're going to say some words about you. I want to live my life in such a way that somebody with integrity could say, you know what, he was a good man. Full of the Holy Spirit and faith and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Fellas, what do you want people to say about you? And you stand up, you act like a man, and you live in such a way that you make those words true. And the reason is because the reason is because the wake behind you is so much bigger than you think. There could be a generation, a generation of men and women that are different if you're the kind of strong man that Jesus has called and created you to be. Amen. Would you please stand and pray with me? our good and gracious heavenly Father. God, we thank you so much that Jesus taught us to primarily relate to you as Father. And Lord, I know this room has some really good dads represented and some really imperfect dads represented. And God, I thank you so much that you are not a reflection of our earthly fathers, but you are the perfection of what it means to be Father. 
And Father, I pray that we, your sons and your daughters, that we would act in the identity that you have claimed for us. That we are sons adopted into your family. And even more than that, we are heirs. That that all that you have is available to us. And God, I pray for the men in this room. Lord, I repent. May we repent of our pride. May we repent of our egos. May we repent of our selfishness. And may we by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the love of Heavenly Father, by the blood of Jesus, may we live after the example set by you, the great God-man, the strongest man to ever live. And Lord, I don't, we can't do anything about our, our past except learn from it and be forgiven of it. And so God, I pray that the men of 1122 from this day forward, that we would be strong in the mighty hand of God. We pray this in the good, strong name of Jesus. Amen. Now, men and women, we respond to the gospel. The gospel demands a response. We respond by joining our voices together and singing. We respond by coming and bending our knee, humbling ourselves before the Lord. Many of us had a lot of of spirit-led changes that we need to make starting this very week. And that will require us to come down, kneel down and say, God, I really need your help. I look to you and you alone. And we respond by bringing our first and our best, our tithes and our offerings. Because he is first, he went first, he loved first, and he loved us by sending us his best in Jesus Christ. And we respond by bringing our first and our best back to him. Let us respond.